Welcome once again to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and with me is my co-host and mother, Caroline Kilborn. And good morning, everyone. I hope you're having a good day. Sun shining here so far. <laughs> yeah, we're we're expecting some really terrible weather tomorrow. There's a storm moving. We're recording this on uh, March 30th. There's a storm that's moving from the west coast eastward. And uh, I think all of us on this call today may be hitting some bad weather tomorrow. Tell us who we're talking with today, Mom. Well, today we're talking with a very interesting uh, gentleman, Ricardo Nuella, and his book is The People's Hospital. And I'll tell you, <laughs> I, 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 I knew that the medical system was kind of discombobulated, but I, I didn't realize. Oh, boy. So we're going <laughs> to learn a lot. We're going to learn a lot by talking to this gentleman. <laughs> and Dr. Nuila is an associate professor of medicine, medical ethics, and health policy at Baylor College of Medicine and a practicing doctor at Houston's Ben Taub Hospital. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Um, one of the few real safety net hospitals in the country. And this book, The People's Hospital, Hope and Peril in American Medicine, is a stunning debut which follows the lives of five uninsured Houstonians as their struggle for survival leads them to a hospital where insurance comes second to genuine care. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Dr. Nuila. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. So um, did I pronounce the name of your hospital correctly? Yes. Great. Ben Taub. Ben Taub. Ben Taub. So tell us what a safety net hospital is, and how many are there in our country? Well, the brokenness of the American healthcare system means that there are gaps, and those have formed over decades, really. And those gaps for where people are uncovered, there have been hospitals that have put as their mission to care for people in those gaps, and those are safety net hospitals. Safety net hospitals. Much, many of them are public hospitals, like the one where I work, but some of them can be nonprofit or for-profit hospitals even. They're trying to provide care to that portion of people who just don't fit into our healthcare system. Again, that's a growing amount of people because we've pegged health insurance to work, and so as the labor market changes and people become unemployed, there's more people who need it. And so... You know, it's quite a bit, uh, a good amount of people who actually need care at safety net hospitals. Now, Ben Taub also takes paying patients as well, correct? Correct, correct. That's one of the interesting parts of uh, Ben Taub is, is that it is a safety net. It's a public, it's the flagship of the public health care system in Houston. That's not very common in the United States, a, a publicly funded health care system that exists within the county. This is the third largest county in the, in the country. And for people who can't afford the healthcare, if you make 150% of the federal poverty level or below, then your care is provided for by property taxes. If you make higher, like some of the subjects in my book, you can pay, you pay out of pocket, but the cost, because there is no profit motive in this healthcare system, there's no insurance companies that are trying to make profit. The doctors are paid on salary. 
the prices are actually quite, quite low, much lower than what you would pay at private hospitals. And you chose to work there because that was why you wanted to be a doctor, was to be able to provide that kind of care? Is that, is, am I, well, am I know, interpreting that correctly? You know, it's interesting because I feel like um, I found that that kind of care is possible in America. In fact, I, I had a real struggle deciding whether or not to, to pursue writing as a career or medicine, and I thought that they were totally separate. <laughs> and uh, at that time, it happened to be that medicine was changing so drastically that I would see my father and that his practice, he's an OB-GYN in Houston, his practice was centered around insurance claims, and I just didn't want that. I just didn't, if that sounded too mechanical and not really what I thought medicine was about. And it wasn't until I came upon this hospital while studying medicine, this is where I studied medicine, that I was like, well, you can practice medicine in America in a way that is at its roots, that you could you could focus on medicine, you can focus on problems, and it doesn't have to be insurance-based. You go into the history of insurance, health insurance, and in the book, and it's something that I know a lot of people aren't familiar with how the whole health insurance industry got started, and that mm -hmm. up until, I think it was... I had known this before because this was something I, that I really had an interest in, but that up until fairly maybe the 60s or 70s, health insurance was not for profit for the most part. Uh, like all the Blue Crosses were all nonprofit. And there was a very yeah. drastic change that occurred. What, why? <laughs> what was, what, what yeah, was wrong with the way it worked before? <laughs> Well, I think a couple of things happened is, is that um, in 1945, uh, as a way for the government to combat inflation at the time occurring because of the war, uh, there was a freeze on wages so that companies couldn't offer higher wages to attract em uh, employees, but they allowed employees to give health care benefits. And so that started to create the system that we have where we peg health insurance to work. And that became over time more and more um, solidified in the tax code. So that, that inclusion with, with work is one of the things that started this snowball. But also in the 1960s when we started – so, and, and just to give a background, so that covered people – for, who are working, but then there became large masses of people who couldn't access healthcare, like, for instance, people who retire, people who didn't work, and with increasing costs in the hospital, they were left uncovered. And so to accommodate that, we enacted during uh, President Johnson's term Medicare and Medicaid, which is government insurance for private healthcare. So we use government funds in Medicaid and Medicare to pay for the private health care of, of, of these people who couldn't access it through work. Now, what happened is, is that in making that law, the lobbyists who supported doctors, 
and um, also insurance companies made it so that fee for service, the the basic fundamental financial model for how we pay for healthcare in America, which is that a doctor, every service that a doctor provides, they can bill for. It's not the overall health or the overall outcome, but it's the every service that was codified into Medicare, Medicaid, and that made that it was extremely expensive. And so what happened after that is, is that corporations identified that there was all this money to be made in healthcare. The government was paying for it, and so it became even more like a run, you know, doctors would bill an excessive amount. You know, insurance companies entered, and, and, and that set out a snowball effect where we have, you know, out-of-control costs, and we still have people who are uncovered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, everybody knows it's broken. And yes. yet when, but every time we try and fix it, there's this huge backlash. Well, I think it's, I think that um, it's indicative to a certain, to a large extent of our political system and how our political system as its practice right now has a hard time fixing problems of this magnitude because there's, like you said, everybody knows. And if you actually do surveys, seven out of 10 Texans believe that the federal government has responsibility to provide basic health care for everybody. I mean, that let that sink in. That's seven out of 10 Texans. There's hmm. unity on political lines when it comes or, uh, across political lines about health care's brokenness and that the government has a role in it. But when these issues get to the moment of, like, parties and candidates, that's when our polarized society takes them apart and we can't fix it. And that's the problem with healthcare too, is is that we have not sat down and forged a real system. What we've done, including the Affordable Care Act, is try to patchwork what what has sort of evolved uh, from before. And so, unfortunately, we just haven't sat down and forged the system, all of us together, and not thought about politics. And that's that's one, one of the reasons where we are where we are. Absolutely. And, you know, when the Affordable Care Act was being, um, you know, they were trying to get it passed, and they were having these town halls, you know, various representatives and so forth mm-hmm. had these town halls. And I attended one, um, and... I was actually really surprised at how angry people were about mm-hmm. some people were about not wanting government in their health care, even though many of those people would benefit greatly from having government involved in their health care. And the people that I know, you know, who are on Medicare or on veterans care, which is in both cases provided through government resources think they do a great yeah. job and it's it was really surprising to me how how really angry some people were about it um now i will say as a business owner a small business owner one thing that i, I and also as a tax professional i know the pluses and the minuses of the aca and and i could go into great mm-hmm. detail on it but one thing that really did that it really did help was to allow small employers to provide health insurance. Um, yes, yeah, and yeah. I mean it is 
it has helped many people's lives. But you're right how how that um, reaction, that gut reaction, many Americans have toward the idea of government running healthcare. But that's one of the reasons why this book I wanted to write it because it's such an interesting um, location for that. In Texas, there's those deep-seated thoughts as well, and. I even have, as one of the people who are is featured in this book, somebody with that exact same mentality. Yes. Who, um, but experiences experiences the public hospital at a at a moment of real critical need, um, but feels like this is means he has hit rock bottom. But his preconceptions are totally turned around, and I feel like uh, one of the lessons that I learned from that is is that, you know. A, it, you know, I understand. I also understand that. I mean, there there is a more acceptance for local government to be running things, but it's also there's just the pre. Like again, we need to unearth these preconceptions. We need to let people know that some of these thoughts are just political ideologies and not real facts. And 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 that's what I'm hoping that part of this book does. One of one of the things that you call out in in the book about Ben Taub is that um, it provides health care to the undocumented in mm-hmm. in our country, which they have a very very difficult time accessing health care. And yes. are there very many other hospitals around the country, or you know, other places like Ben Taub, or is it really an anomaly? It's a, it's it's complex because um, it has to do with each state and how robust the, the state's um, Medicaid programs are, okay, um, and, and also the rules carved around Medicaid. Uh, because so in Texas, the counties, each individual county has a little bit more um, power in order to determine who they're going to treat. And so Harris County has stated our definition of the people that we treat are residents of the city and we don't require documentation of a green card. And that's because, you know, Houston has an enormous, you know, population of undocumented people. And if <laughs> and it couldn't treatment, function without it, them. <laughs> it couldn't function without it. it couldn't func- it's one of the yeah. reasons why the city thrives. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why the labor that's provided helps the city grow and thrive. And if, the people couldn't get any health care, they would end up going to emergency rooms of nonprofit hospitals and for-profit hospitals, and nobody would be able to get timely care in the city if that happened. And so uh, in, in Texas, there's been, you know, those, uh, that allowance in the cities, in the large cities, has meant that there's systems like in Dallas, in um, in Houston and El Paso, San Antonio, those cities have have, have 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 tried to target undocumented immigrants to help the to help them with health care. You know, now at the but that's one of the reasons is because the state doesn't really provide at a state level great medical services, and we didn't take Medicaid expansion. You know, mm-hmm. Texas did not take Medicaid expansion, and one of the real quandaries is is that you know, Medicaid and Medicare, these government insurers explicitly 
leave out the undocumented. So if you're in a state that really depends a lot on Medicaid or federal, some level of federal uh, insurance, then the undocumented are not going to be included because they're explicitly left out of any federal funds for their health care. Wow. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest today is Dr. Ricardo Nuila, author of The People's Hospital, Hope and Peril in American Medicine. Now, you're talking, the whole thing seems like a disaster. So what is a disaster syndrome? Because that seems to be an important thing here. Yeah, disaster syndrome. So just, uh, just to, to backtrack slightly, disaster syndrome is a term that, came up in a book that was really precious to me that I read, written by the author Jan de Hartog, who worked at Bentop Hospital in the 1960s as an orderly. And he, he's a fascinating person, one of the most fascinating people that I've ever read about. He was a Nazi resistance fighter, Dutch sea captain, who also turned into a playwright and a novelist. <laughs> and happened to find a job in Houston, Texas in the, in the early 60s. As a Quaker, he wanted to go and volunteer in the city that he was moving to. to. What ha- Houston at that time was the city of the future. NASA was there. This was the middle of the – this was the Cold War. And so demonstrating space superiority was a big deal, and NASA was a big part of that. The Astrodome, the first dome structure for sports, was being built. But at the same time, there were whispers in the city about this public hospital that was atrocious, and that was Jefferson Davis. It was a charity hospital, uh, the only one where anybody who couldn't afford health care could go, and that was mostly African-Americans. I'll let that resonate with, with your listeners <laughs> that African-Americans <laughs> had to go to Jefferson Davis Hospital. Uh, yeah. And he, yeah, so he – he heard the rumors in the city among the wealthy that the, the maternity wards, that the children would cry all night for a lack of milk. And that like many, I mean, staph infections roiled through the wards and people died and it was just thought to be atrocious. And so he went and volunteered there and in volunteering there, he saw exactly that. He saw cockroaches crawling around people's tracheostomies. He saw awful things. People left, days and in their own filth and he wrote a series of op-eds about it that signaled to the world that houston did not provide care for its you know for the people who could not afford health care and that spurred this community initiative to bring health care to houston it was a rep it ended up being a referendum It, it it went on the ballot three times but uh, the, the referendum was that, you know, the city would pay for, through pat property taxes, a system to care for the people who could not afford health care. So he's, he's one of the reasons, and he talks about disaster syndrome, which is this idea that um, we just think we're – that we just come to accept these atrocious conditions as reality and that we can't do anything about it. And I feel like it's a very important term because I, I feel like that's where America is a lot with healthcare. We just, we yeah. just think that everything that we do is going to circumvent 
Um, but we 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 know that healthcare is broken, like you said. We know that people are not getting the proper care that they're getting billed and they're getting thrown out of emergency rooms. But we, yet we just say like we just say, oh, we're doing the best of it. We're doing the best with it, and we just come to accept that. And and that's what what John DeHartog would call disaster syndrome. Wow. Yeah. Well, I say I'd say that's pretty accurate. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Nuila, let's talk a little bit more about your writing career. So, this is is this your first book? This is my first published book. I first had a book published of short book, stories okay. that I had. <laughs> I had a book of short stories that I had been working on, and when the pub, when the editors asked, "Well, where would the uh, novel be <laughs> or the next book after that?" Because um, short stories, as as I love short stories, but as you know. They they don't sell well, so the publisher wanted to see something else before short stories. Okay, and but you've been published. Your short stories have been published widely. Yes, and um, one of them was in Best American Short Stories anthology in McSweeney's Guernica. Um, I really love the form. I really love short stories. And you've also written. Um, Non other nonfiction as well, like essays and so forth. So the um, how do you f- like fit the writing in with being a, a doctor? Yeah, that was a struggle for a long time. It remains um, something that is orchestrated, but I can tell you that to me, it's one thing now. Working as a doctor and writing is one thing. When, I, when I'm working on the wards being working as a doctor, I feel like I'm working on my writing. And when I'm writing, I feel like I'm working on being a better doctor. And it's taken a lot to get to that level, but that's how I envision it now. Now, obviously, this book is about your work as a doctor, but is your other writing based on your work as a doctor also? Not all of it, but I feel very drawn to it. One of my heroes, and I mention it, is, is Anton Chekhov, who is a doctor and short story writer, playwright. You know, everybody, everybody probably who's your listener knows a bit about Chekhov. But what I admire so much about him is that he doesn't explicitly write about medicine very much. Um, I, I wish that I could do that, but I... I guess I find so much within medicine it, and, and that I have a certain perch or vantage point into those stories or those conflicts. It, I feel very drawn to, to write about medicine, even though I, I feel like I can write about a lot of different things. I feel, I feel like a writer who happens to practice medicine and I could write about other things, but but medicine is very, especially in America, is very captivating. It is. You know, it's interesting how many of our guests over the years have been doctors, quite a few. And some of them are writing wow. about, you know, medicine, but some of them are writing mysteries or um, young adult novels, all kinds of different things. Yeah, yeah. I think that if you, medicine gives you this mo- these moments with people, these precious moments with people where... There's an honesty that 
that occurs often with patients, you know, where they, there's a vulnerability that is revealed and hopefully you can reciprocate, you know, your own vulnerabilities with patients and forging that trust. That, that's really precious and, and special. And I think it really helps with the, you know, with the understanding of like these stories and, 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 and the, the desire to depict them. Mm. Absolutely. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, uh, Roxana's story? She was one of the patients. Sure. You... Sure. Yes, Roxana is. So I met Roxana in the Bentob uh, emergency room. She had arrived there after a real medical odyssey. She's. She was she amazing. Was from El Salvador. <laughs> She was amazing, and she still continues. Like she is a, an insp- inspiration to me. Um, she's from El Salvador, which is where my parents are from, and that's one of the reasons why we instantly connected. She had immigrated in the '90s, um, and at that time, when she did, it was an, it was you know she walked across the border. She said, and she came to Houston and was immediately plugged into. Um, jobs. She she found a job at Saks Fifth Avenue, catering to the wealthy clientele of Houston. Uh, she in a lot of twists and turns in life. She does service for you know some of the wealth, the the infirmed of the wealthy. But she loses. She 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 no longer has health insurance when one of her best friends sees her for the first time in a long time and notices that Roxana looks severely ill. The preceding nine months, she had been just losing weight and vomiting, and so her friend takes her immediately to the hospital, where it's discovered she has this tumor that arises from one of the blood vessels and, you know, wraps around the heart and also around the liver. She happens to be in Houston, Texas, which, again, in Houston, it's a medical city. We have the Texas Medical Center. So there is a conglomeration of people who love medicine and who are real experts. And we, within the city is the best, best, the world's best heart surgeon for this. Mm-hmm. And she happens to be, and because she's in an emergency state, the hospital and the surgeon can bill emergency Medicaid for her service, for, to, for the service. And so she does get an operation to remove this tumor. However, when she wakes up from this operation a few weeks later, because it's an enormous operation and it involves going on cardiac bypass during the surgery, she realizes that she has suffered one of the most awful complications of it. Now, what happened is, is that when she, when, when this doesn't happen commonly, but when the tumor is incised or dissected, during the operation, her body, cytokines and molecules were released and which, which sent her body into a haywire during the operation as she's under anesthetic. And it made her body decide to clamp down on her, the circulation to her limbs clamped down to assure that the circulation was feeding her vital organs. But once the, circulation clamped down to her extremities, to her limbs, 
they started to die. And so when she wakes up, she sees that she has black arms and legs. She's got dry gangrene of her arms and legs. They're dead. Mm. And what happens, what happens is, to me, very indicative of the American healthcare system, too, is that she switches from an emergency patient to a chronic condition patient. She has these dead limbs, but she's not, her, her life isn't at risk from these dead limbs right now because they're dry gangrene. And so the, so the hospital and the doctors don't know what to do with her because she is uninsured. And so they tell her they can't really help her and that they, she has to wait until they just fall off themselves. And so Roxana holds up her arms as they're telling her they're going to discharge her and say, like a dead tree trunk falling off of a tree, and she lifts up her dead arms like that. Her story... Her story and what happens with her, how she manages the dead limbs, how she maintains grace, how she maintains compassion for others is, to me, one of the most inspirational stories that I've been around. And um, I just feel very privileged to have been around it. I just, it's impossible to imagine facing. Yeah, having all of your limbs amputated and then not even being able to yeah. have it done because you can't pay yeah. for it. And I just, and until you do, you can't get a prosthetic. You can't function at all. You can't, you're, you're, you're completely vulnerable and you're left to, um, to face this vulnerability and this, you know, I mean, Roxana was a very, is a, you know, gracious and person who felt shame at these limbs, you know, and wanted them away so that she could keep a measure of dignity. And so it was very difficult. And and we just don't have a healthcare system to deal with new with um, you know, where we have a system where there's not universal basic healthcare access. People outside of Houston, Texas, I don't know what they do. I really don't know. Her story to me was as powerfully a demonstration of like what public health care can do for everybody. If we establish a line of dignity, a standard that we can actually help people, I think that's a good thing for everybody. And what, you know, the other part of that is, is that, that's actually cost saving. You know? yeah. This is actually, yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing. I mean, I'm not trying to sell, you know, I'm not, I, I'm actually making the opposite argument. Some people might say, oh yes, of course, that's the very liberal argument of just giving everybody and we're just going to all have to pay. And I'm just like, no, we get to cost save too, you know, <laughs> like, but so it's, it's, um, because a, the way it very... is, the way it is now, and, and maybe, I don't know, do people not understand this? That because we aren't so horrible as a nation that we're willing to just watch people die, we have right. passed this law that if, if it's a life and death emergency, everybody gets treated. But because that's Correct. the only situation where some people can get treated, they let they have no choice but to let things get to that point. Yes. 
And then we go through all these, all these um, kind of heroic measures to save and expensive measures to save their life. Whereas if mm-hmm. they'd had healthcare along all along, it would not have ever gotten to that point. And, and it's not just the we, cost we, of medicine. It's also the lack, the loss of labor of a potential mm-hmm. worker. Um, the yes, other, I mean, other strains fact, on our social network. Exactly. Um, yes, I couldn't say it better. And <laughs> they've done, they've done studies of the public healthcare system in Houston. And that shows that every dollar of tax that goes into the system produces $2 and 50 cents worth of, pro, of, of GDP for the city. So it is an investment. Like you said, it's labor. It's, 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 you have, it's helping the city when we are providing healthcare for everybody, particularly because, our system is one of emergencies, like you said, and we are paying absolute top dollar when we let things go into emergency care. One of the examples is with kidney care, you know, with kidney disease where, you know, when we allow people not to have insurance and to have, you know, dialysis when they have kidney failure, when they have to come to the emergency room, all, you know, imagine that. They come to the emergency, they base their lives on coming to the emergency room two times every week to survive people who need dialysis to survive like that and go to the emergency room, they cost around $280,000. And that is not from their pockets. That is from hospitals. Us, our, It ends up being all of us that pay for that, you know, $280,000 because of the way that funding to help hospitals who care for the uninsured. Is. And, and if- no single person can, can just pay for this themselves, by the way, you know, um, but but if you give them coverage and you put them in a dialysis center, the cost drops down to seventy thousand dollars a year versus two hundred eighty thousand dollars, three and a half times or three uh, three or so three and a half times less. So we're just paying for emergency care and it's m- making us bankrupt. Wow. Yeah, I found it interesting that, you, yeah, you talk a lot about dialysis and, and the distinction that one of the patients that you're following in the book um, needed, it took him forever to get diagnosed in the first place, and he had a health insurance. Yes. He, he again, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fiction in America that insurance is good enough. You know, there's these statistics that journalists and whatnot uh, studies show about like insured versus versus uninsured and it, it's it's become so vague what insurance means that uh, you know we don't we don't know what kind of coverage that really gives people insurances have different levels of quality just like any product you know and many don't cover a lot of things in his and on top of that um you know if you don't have somebody overseeing the care People can be ping-ponged around between different doctors who are not really trying to guide the ship and make diagnosis. And that's what Christian, another person who's in college or coming out of college, retail worker, has insurance but is ping-ponged around. And he decides ultimately that his best bet at getting a diagnosis or at least figuring something out is to go to Mexico instead of the United States, which is – I think becoming a little bit more common that people are saying, I can't, I, 
I can't deal with this system here. I have to go somewhere else. Yeah. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest today is Dr. Ricardo Noila, author of The People's Hospital. Ricardo, would you like to read a little bit from the book? Sure, sure. I'm going to read from The People's Hospital, Hope and Peril in American Medicine, and I'm going to read from the first chapter. This is just half, a little bit halfway through the first chapter. Early in my career, during my internship, I was slated to take care of patients in Ben Tobbs general wards, meaning those hospitalized for some degree of organ dysfunction, kidney disease, liver cirrhosis, pneumonia, infections of the skin. Every morning I pulled into work listening to a Wilco song. I wasn't superstitious, but one particular line seemed to encapsulate all the illnesses I was witnessing and my general feeling of ineptitude, and it comforted me to recite it. Maybe I won't be so afraid. I have no idea when this ritual stopped. I arrived on the wards and printed out a list of my new patients. Then I visited each hospital unit and started reading through the charts. Everything was paper back then, meaning you could flip and flip and flip through orders, test results, the notes of other doctors and still not get to the bottom of what exactly was happening. One patient had a particularly large chart, actually two charts duct taped together, Alvaro. It was so heavy and had been flipped through so many times that, like on an old book, cracks had started to show in its gray spine. I read about Alvaro's many surgeries, hip surgery, belly surgery, large portions of his intestines removed. For months, he couldn't eat. His only nutrition delivered through an IV and then a tube in his stomach. It started as colon cancer. It had spread throughout Alvaro's body to multiple organs and joints. Over the prior nine months, he'd spent only a couple of weeks out of the hospital. Otherwise, he was in the ICU, then the wards, then the ICU again with septic shock from an infection of the blood, then a rehab center, then again the ICU. And now Alvaro was here on the wards and Ben Todd, my new patient. After flipping through the chart, I draped a stethoscope around my neck and went to meet him. English or Spanish? This was the first important question I asked. Español, he said. When I was a medical student, professors used to praise me for the translations I provided. They had no clue. I'm the son of Salvadoran immigrants and, as such, grew up with Spanish everywhere, at the dinner table, at my parents' parties, every summer visiting my grandparents in the hills outside the capital. But apparently reading and studying English influenced me more, and I speak Spanish like a gringo. <laughs> it is something I'm constantly aware of, a part of who I am, and how I'm seen, like a tick, except at Ben Tob. The patients here rarely mention it. Even my Spanish is music to their ears. Any bleeding, I asked. Mr. Alvaro shifted his head a little. I don't think so. Can you lean forward, I said, giving him a little push. He took two short breaths like a weightlifter in the clench and stayed right in place. Not really, he grunted. When I was on my way into his room, the nurse had stopped me. There was a decision I had to make. The quicker, the better. Map is 60, she said. Want to get fluids? 
It took me more than a second to realize what she was saying. The mean arterial pressure map tells us if our vital organs are receiving an adequate amount of blood and nourishment. If this number is too low, then organs aren't receiving the blood supply needed to survive. My new patient's map was right at the cutoff. Patients with low maps usually have to go to the ICU. Mr. Alvaro had just come from the ICU, and the nurse wanted to know if we could give IV fluids to bring up the map or if we needed to send him back. I told the nurse to give me a minute. In thinking about what to do about the map, I had almost blinded myself to what was in front of me, a scared man struggling to live as much as to die. I went back into the room, sat down beside Alvaro, and listened to his story. Alvaro told me about the past nine months of his life, not about the pain or the vomiting or the bloody stools constantly filling the bag attached to what remained of his intestines, but how he'd become a burden to his family. His daughter stayed with him in the hospital most nights and worked during the day cleaning offices. She had to. If you're poor and people depend on you, you can't not make money. She had kids at home, too, school-aged kids. Alvaro told me she should have been taking care of them, not him. Somehow, in this moment, my Spanish didn't stumble. You know that it's okay if you die, I said. As ever, I could hear a note of gringo, but the accent sounded muted, unimportant. He was the same age as my grandfather. Maybe that's why I said what I did. Or maybe, seeing the fear in his eyes when we discussed what might happen next, that this could go on, gave me the courage to be frank. When I came out of the room, I saw the nurse talking with a woman I quickly recognized as Alvaro's daughter. I buttoned my white coat and wove my way into the conversation. How is he, the, the daughter asked. I told her what Alvaro had told me, that he didn't want doctors to resuscitate him if his heart stopped that he didn't want a breathing tube inserted under any circumstances. What this meant was that he wouldn't be returning to the ICU again, ever. He's been through so much, I said in Spanish. I think he's tired. She nodded. It was still summer. The ridiculous Houston heat continued to broil outside, and yet everyone in Bentob wore layers and long sleeves. The AC did that to us. The daughter shivered, held her elbows tight. I know he is, she said. As I started to walk away, the nurse reminded me about the map. Are we giving fluids? He's DNR, DNI now, I said. I'll put it in the chart. I'll put in the order. I flipped to the order section of his chart, wrote do not resuscitate with my signature timed and dated, and slid the wobbly chart into its slot. I called my attending and told him about the change. Immediately, I turned my attention to the next name on my list a patient staying on the other side of the hospital. I didn't walk there with my usual quick pace, but I didn't saunter either. 10 minutes later, I was absorbed in a different patient's chart. That's when my pager went off. I cursed having to be so connected and called the number back. This is the intern, I said. Just wanted to let you know that Mr. A just passed, said the nurse. He's dead? The daughter's at the bedside. I rushed back to the unit and met the daughter in the hallway. She was on the phone, pacing, crying, holding a tissue beneath her nose, getting words out. I didn't want to interrupt her, 
And so I waited until I had her attention. And then I mouthed to her in Spanish, lo siento. She smiled at me courteously and held her hand over the receiver. It's okay. It's really okay, she said. It didn't hit me until after I performed what had to be done next. The death exam, the death note, signing off for transportation to wheel the body away. That Mr. Alvaro might have still been alive if we hadn't talked. Was that even possible? That words could mean the difference between life and death? I knew the words I had written, do not resuscitate, had that power. But what about our shared words? What about what I had said to Mr. Alvaro? What about what he had said to me? What about Mr. Alvaro's story? It's been over a decade since Mr. Alvaro died. I've cared for hundreds of patients at Ben Taub in that time. Patients from Nigeria, Bhutan, Eritrea, Vietnam, the Fifth Ward here in Houston, even my grandparents' village in El Salvador. I'm no longer an intern. In fact, now I am the one teaching residents and medical students. Still, I try to find my patient's stories. It's my favorite part of being a doctor. I don't mean their medical history. I mean the circumstances of their lives. All of this information helps me to better empathize with them but the stories also make medical care more efficient, more personal, and they reduce the number of tests needed to diagnose and give treatment. Thank you. That's Dr. Ricardo Nuila reading from the People's Hospital, Hope and Peril in American Medicine. So I think it's pretty obvious from that section that um, that a lot of this book is telling people's stories your story, mm-hmm. your father's story, your patient's story, and the story of medicine in America. And, you know, you do, you do give the hist, kind of a history of the medicine, of medicine. You do talk mm-hmm. about insurance. You do talk about the political situation. And yet it's all done in a way that's very, um, I don't know, to me, very interesting, not, not at all dry. How did you, figure out how to weave these different parts of the story together because I, I'm very impressed with how comprehensive this book is, but also how just really a good read it is. Thank you so much. That means the world to me because I really <laughs> approached it as a writer um, and I was aware of every, every, I feel like I was, that was on my mind at every sentence, like losing the reader not making it dry, making it something that people wanted to keep on reading. And I feel like that the stories um, were the foundation. The, the initial thought was, I just want to write patient stories, and I want to write these stories about people that, you know, that have not been told before. We don't know how hard it is for some of these people to live and to get through life and, and to find health care. I mean, some people take it for granted, as, as you might have mentioned before, that we take stuff for granted. So that was the foundation. But, but it became quickly clear that there was no connective tissue with, with just the stories. And that really I had to – the structure was the hardest part of this book to figure out. And I would say that it probably took me multiple years to figure it out. Um, trying different things and also trying to kind of situate. The stories came first, so it was not like I 
went first and said, I want to write about American healthcare. I started <laughs> with the stories and it was more like, it was more like, oh, in order to, in order to deepen the, the gravity of this dramatic situation, I kind of have to give context. And the context became, well, how do I give context in a way that is, that it also has an arc? And so, I mean, I really had to design an argument and like stories that followed similar arcs in kind of like a helix fashion, you know? Mm. And, and that it was, um, it, it was hard. I can't, I, there's just no other way about it. I really beat my head against, I even had the awful conversation. I mean, I love my editor very deeply because she's, she's been with me on that. But uh, I had that conversation with her at one point where I gave her an early draft and she called me right before Thanksgiving to say, you have to stop writing because this is not working. Oh, this wow. Is the hardest. <laughs> oh. This is, finding, finding the structure was, was, was extremely difficult, but I wanted it very much to be a book about stories. Um, I think that the major hurdle was me figuring out that I could allow myself to be in the book because I resisted that greatly at first. Oh, interesting. I, yeah, I don't know how it could have worked without you being in the book. I had to, I did not want to overshadow any of the stories and I wanted the stories to to stand for themselves. Um, But uh, I think when, one thing happened also is that I gave my uh, an early draft to one of my friends who's a great reader, and he said, "You know, it's weird. I'm on page only on, until page 222 do I find out that your dad's a doctor. It feels like you're withholding information." <laughs> and I was like, "I was like, you're right. I am, and I don't know. I just I, it was this mental hurdle of like I I can't use my my own story because I didn't want any of my own or my dad's story to overshadow anything, but then." I was also reading the right books about the history of medicine, and I realized that my dad's story could say a lot about that history of medicine, and that mm-hmm. really allowed me to to write a little bit toward that structure. Yeah, I mean, you talk about how he changed as medicine changed, as medicine became what you call Medicine Inc., um, Mm-hmm. much oh, yeah. more yeah. for profit and and you you kind of saw his even though he bought into it completely in one sense he became much less happy as a as mm-hmm. a doctor now has is your has your dad read the book he did and um and he, said he read it in two, <laughs> in two nights and he said quote i liked it <laughs> Really? Um, yeah, yeah. He, he he did like it. I think that he he said that he had a quibble with how I depicted one little scene back in El Salvador when he was a child, but he said that he enjoyed it otherwise. And he, you know, I think that that's that he read it really meant a lot to me because I wasn't. I, you know, he and I are close, and and, and our and our relationship supersedes any sort of. Um, I'm I'm happy to say that it supersedes any political discussions that we have. And we do have our, you know, loggerheads politically. We also have, um, you know, I, I think it also supersedes his um, trepidation of 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 being written about. Mm. And so it's. Um, 
I'm, I'm really happy that he read it. And, well, do and you, I think he respects it, too. Do you think that even though, in some sense, he's on the opposing side of the political question, that maybe he really does view medicine very similarly to you? I think I think he does, and I think that that's one of the reasons why I find hope. And like I mentioned, that there's this is something that crosses political this is within both political sides. That there's agreement that medicine should be different than what it is now, because I think um, he's a proud and he he he's a proud doctor who knows the fundamentals of, of medicine. He wants to help patients, you know, and he's good with helping patients. And and I think that there's a lot of people who might have political leanings toward that type of people, you know, like just because you are you support one candidate or not doesn't mean that you can't get in front of a person as a doctor and be like serve that person. And I think that that is the that's one of the things that I believe is indicative of. There's a lot of people like that. It, it's hard for doctors because they spend so much time in medical school. They come out with, many times with so much debt that right. to make a deliberate choice to not go after the highest income possible is hard. Yes, I agree. And what I, you know, I was just having that discussion yesterday, and. Um, I would say that that's one of the things that the Texas legislature does really well, actually. I mean, they do a lot of bad things, but um, they subsidize medical education so that I, my medical education, um, it was affordable. It was, I paid $6,500 a year for tuition uh, for my medical education, and um, it influenced how I could, into what profession I could go. And, you know... I think that it's a model. I think we need to start thinking about that. Like how can we, one of the ways that we can solve this is it's true. You're right. The it is, it is so difficult to think that you might have like 500 to $750,000 worth of debt with a high, with a higher interest rate. Cause when I went to, when I got my student debt, it was a 2%. I mean, some people I've seen at 7%. I mean, that's going to influence mm -hmm. what you go into. So I think we need to think about mm -hmm. some sort of subsidization to help doctors go into the fields that are helpful for society, you know? Well, you talk in the book about the pending shortage, doctor shortage. Do you want to, we only have a few minutes, but can you just briefly touch on that? Sure. I, I mean, there's already going to be too many patients for each doctor, there's going to be a doctor shortage. But on top of that, one of the crises of the profession is, is that people are leaving the profession. Doctors are starting to burn out and they're deciding to leave early. And when you consider how much um, training they've received and how much resources that society has used to produce doctors, if you put it like that, uh, it's a real negative for everybody that we're going to have even, even greater doctor shortage. And so we're trying to develop ways to help doctors, you know, stay in the profession, help combat that burnout. You know, burnout is very is a very complex um, um, thought here, but it's 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 really affecting the way that doctors stay in the profession, in the, in the profession. Oh, 
definitely. And I, I think probably most people who go into medicine go into it because they want to help people. There may be some who go into it because they see it as a way to make a lot of money, but I think most people, there's easier, there's a lot easier ways to make a lot of money, believe me. <laughs> yeah. And, I agree. Yeah. I agree. And I agree. I think, I think it's, I think I've been impressed by generations of young doctors coming through because I work at a, the, the hospital, Ben Fox's teaching hospital. So I, I see so many learners and I agree that so many come in with great intentions. I think a lot keeps good intentions. I think that it's also our system just misappropriates these intentions and, 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 and makes incentives so strong that even somebody with great intentions can be found themselves drawn into certain work, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. Wheela, we're really out of time, and I want to thank you mm -hmm. so much for being with us today and for sharing these stories in the People's Hospital, Hope and Peril in American Medicine. It's, um, I just want to tell our listeners, if you, even, if you care at all about our medical system, this is the book to read. If all you want yes. is a good story, this is the book to read. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, that, yeah, I really appreciate the, you know, the thought and the, and, and having me on the program. So thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. And Caroline, do you have some final words for us today? Well, there were a lot of really good quotes in here, but this, and this is from the book. If someone is suffering and there is a capacity within the community to help in a way that doesn't harm anyone else, then we are not only, we not only owe it to that person, we also owe it to ourselves to help. Mm. I think that's the bottom line. Uh, thank you for reading that. that yeah, it's, it's, it, sometimes you forget your own words, and I was like, oh, wow, I'm glad I wrote that. I'm, I'm glad that. you did, too. <laughs> thank you so much, and see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Bye.